This is Circulating Ideas, episode number 217. I'm Steve Thomas, and my guest today is Dion Graham. He is a multiple Audi Award-winning and critically acclaimed actor and narrator. And he's performed on Broadway, off-Broadway, internationally in films, and in several hit television series like The Wire. Circulating Ideas is brought to you with support from listeners just like you. Find out how you can help support the show by going to circulatingideas.com slash support. Dion, welcome to Circulating Ideas. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me. I'm glad to be with you. We're mostly going to talk about audio work here, but I did want to start by asking some of your earliest memories about libraries. Oh, well, libraries were and are very important in my life. There's a funny and great story. Well, it's an endearing story, I think, that I can tell you about the library. And that is, is that I've just been a book nerd <laughs> since I was a kid. And it certainly was true that, for instance, in the summertime, my best friend from across the street, we would walk the mile uh, from our house to our local library and we would be there waiting for the library to open sometimes so we could get our books before we before we came back and played pick up basketball, football, or any things that kids do. But the library was very, very important. And I'd spent um, a lot of life there. I'm going to name check it right now. Northern Hills Branch Library in Cincinnati, which is where I grew up, was a great place for me. And that's really where my, my library uh, memories start. But really, it was like being given the keys to the universe <laughs> and actually as i look back on it it's really clear to me and just memorable the role that librarians had in my life too just in terms of pointing me in great directions and facilitating reading and just everything i, I know it, i'm thinking about thinking about lots of times also thinking i was in uh sections of the library that were slightly older reading-wise than where I was um, theoretically supposed to be, but I love being there. I wasn't in any inappropriate places, anything like that. I'm thinking about how I began a lifelong journey there. I really discovered science fiction. Then I remember a series that I was really taken with, which was the Tycho Bass series, Mr. Bass series. Uh, mm-hmm. I forget the name of the books, but they were sci-fi for kids, and they were great, and that began kind of lifelong journey with science fiction. Not that I get to read it all the time now, but I'm certainly interested. Hilariously, I am waiting until I get some room on my plate so I can actually get to the third book in the Three Body Problem trilogy, <laughs> which I know is going to be really great. The first book's really great, but I have to wait until things quiet down a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> has that already been published in China? I know it's... Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure it has. I think all three of them are well-known here and there and he's great and he's got some other books as well but my first introduction to him was with the three-body problem and it's been great i can't wait to get into it that's excellent so how did you get involved with audiobook narration in the first place i mean you were an actor before that but what got you into audiobook narration that's a great question it went a little something like this there are two stories i can tell you and i'm going to tell you both it went a little something like this so First thing that happened was after I'd finished my training, this was probably about, oh, a year, maybe two, I was living 
just outside of New York, my apartment mate was someone that I trained with. And one time I was going home for Christmas uh, and he said, oh, hey, hey, would you just like record this into like a cassette player? I just think it might be fun to listen to you do it. I was like, sure, it's fine. And what it was, was it was James Joyce's The Dead. So I took it home. And of course, I remember just before I was supposed to come back to New York. <laughs> and so the morning, I think, before I was getting on a plane to get back, I went downstairs to my parents' house in the basement. And I was in my pajamas and robe in kind of a dim room. And I recorded it. And I brought it back and forgot about it. And I think we listened to it in the dark, maybe a couple months later. And uh, it, was really, it was just really compelling. And I had a, had a good time listening to it. And I was like, we were like, wow, wow. So that's the one story. The second story was that I was doing, this was some years later, and I did a show. I was doing a world premiere of the Lost Tennessee Williams play at the Royal National Theater in London. And I happened to meet a friend of a friend of mine who was in the cast, who's an actor, and he's definitely a friend of mine now too, who narrated audiobooks in both London and in New York because he lives in both places for part of the year. And I said, oh, that sounds like fun. Maybe when I get back, you could make an introduction uh, for me. And so six, seven, eight months later, when I got back, he did make an introduction. And it took a while before somebody actually listened to a little sample that I made. But all I can say is I had no idea that I would fall in love with this aspect of my work, as I certainly have. And I also had no idea that there would be so much appreciation um, and respect for this aspect of my work. So I feel um, really blessed because I, I really enjoy it. I really enjoy it. Yeah, because I remember earlier audiobooks before the kind of the, I don't know, renaissance of audiobooks that it was really pretty boring <laughs> to hear. Someone <laughs> would just sit there and just read the book. But now people like you and I had January Lavoie on earlier too and just like all these oh, great, great performers, you know, just bring it to life and it's not just listening to somebody read oh wow it's funny because i know what you mean i remember when i started i remember when i started often enough i would hear oh no 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 you can't do that no 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 no, you can't characterize that much <laughs> no 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 and, I'm, and i was always like like a three-year-old i was just like but why because <laughs> it just made sense <laughs> to me and of course they said well we're not allowed to or whatever and so all i know is that I just try to respond to the book as someone who loves to read. Also, the movie, so to speak, of books begins without you having to do anything in your mind. So I just really try to be an open channel for that flowing right down the chute in bringing it to life. So I really appreciate you saying that, Steve. I really appreciate the myriad ways that that can happen, too. So, yeah. Well, what was the first audiobook job that you did? you remember? I think I do. Let's see. I think it, the very first book I did professionally was called Caught Up in the Rapture, I think. And it was a three-person book. It was a multi-narrator book. And I was narrating a guy who was a younger guy, young man who was an aspiring rapper, I think, if I remember correctly. <laughs> So, and I wouldn't necessarily say it was high literature, but that was my, that was the first one I did. <laughs> did you, did you actually have to rap? I think I did a little bit. 
I think I did a little bit, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I think you did. And if I, I remember correctly, I think the character's name was X-Man or something like that. So something just popped into my mind that I wanted to share with you too. It's funny because every now and then you'll see Red by or something like that. And I like to distinguish a little bit because I feel like what I do, what other people like January, what, what people are doing out here with audiobooks is it's narrated by. So you could also say brought to life by or performed by, but I, I like narrated by because it's a little bit different than just reading. Yeah. And I just think that's an important distinction, if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, definitely. Reading is that old style we talked about and <laughs> performing, narrating is what you're doing. How do you balance your work now? Like how many audiobooks would you say in, on average do you do a year? Oh, it depends on a few things. It depends on just what comes down the pipe. It also depends on what, my shooting schedule or performing either on stage or um, on screen schedule is like two. But I will say that typically I'm recording at least 10 to 15 a year, maybe 10, let's just say at least 10 a year. But during these pandemic times, I think I've maxed out with like maybe, maybe 20 or something a year, which is, it's a lot. I'm fortunate that I, I get mostly wonderful uh, material in all different realms. So if I have the time to do it, I'm always up for it. How does it feel to be the person that's giving voice to the author's work? I really love, I love doing it. And I really try to, with great respect to the author and the, the writing, I really try to just put myself in a position to discover what the tale is about and spin it out, spool it out, conjure it, tell it in the ways that make sense and in the ways that make sense that are connected to my own creative response um, to what I'm getting as I'm reading the book. Some have lots of characters. Some have few characters. They're all different kinds of styles. I feel really fortunate about that. But that's probably a, a mirror of how I approach my work in the different realms as well. Some people are really excellent at playing their three notes. I'm kind of 360, so... I don't feel limited about anything. I feel really, really confident about jumping into anything that moves me. There are times when, particularly during these days we're in now, where you might feel like, well, this is the Russian person. This is the main character, so maybe they should, maybe you should get a Russian person to narrate this. But then there are exceptions to that, too, because well, I do think it is great to have people represented who are reflected in the book, and sometimes people who don't oftentimes get representation. At the same time, I also want to say, if there are artists who have capabilities of really bringing it to life authentically, and when I say authentically, I mean creating an authentic response in listeners, I think that's fantastic too. This is making me think about some narration I've done for Colin McCann's books. He asked me to do three of his titles this past year. And I'm so honored that he did ask me to do it. One was his book, Dancer, inspired by and largely surrounding the life of Rudolf Noyev, um, Russian dancer who left and became a superstar in the world. It takes place mostly in Russia. So it didn't make sense to me at all to try to do it with a Russian accent. There was enough time to master that enough. And his story didn't require that. But what I did try to do is I did try to keep the Russian pronunciations of cities, Russian words, 
authentic just to let us know that that's where we were. Another one of them was his book, Song Dogs, which was about a young man who is grappling with his life as handed to him or as born for him with his parents. His father was Irish. His mom was Mexican. And interestingly in this, I read it and I thought, I actually asked him, I said, so did you want to get an Irish narrator? And that's okay if you want to. And he said, no, 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 actually I don't. I don't think there's any need for that. I'd love for you to do it. And he said something that is really stuck with me. I think it's important for everyone to hear. And he said, you know, I think that it's important for us to be able to tell each other's stories as well. Not just tell our stories. It's important for us to be able to tell our stories. Yeah. But it's important for us to be able to tell each other's stories as well. There's a point of connection in that. And I really understood that. And I didn't do it with an Irish accent. I lean towards some cadences towards Ireland sometimes. And this, this young man had certainly traveled around the world as well. And I, I'm really proud of it too. So anyway, don't want to go on too much about that, but there are, there are all kinds of ways into story. And we are having that experience as we're reading as well. So I, I try to, to honor that and telling it. It's a thrill. Like you said, the representation is important. And if that's like the main gist of it, it's good to have that. I'm thinking in particular, I happen to just do a book talk at the library, a virtual one online about Dear Martin by Nick Stone. Oh, I noticed that oh, yeah. you did the narration for that one. But a lot of times you don't want every audiobook to be an, a multi-narrator where it's like, oh, well, here's the white character. Better get a white actor right. in here. I think it's appropriate in that book to have an African-American do that. But you don't want to bring in somebody else for every other character who doesn't fit exactly you. Absolutely. Steve, I, re I really agree with you about that. I mean, I think that can be fun sometimes. But in terms of we're, we're trying to bring this piece to life, and I think that what you're saying is absolutely right. So what is important is having an artist who has the breadth and depth to be able to, to do that. And then with Dear Martin, the main character is a young Black man, but he has friends who are young Black men, who are young white folks as well. And I just think all of those were to be approached just with integrity in terms of bringing them to life. And also just sharing the, the message and journey that Nick wrote in the book was really important. So yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I feel like that's sort of a companion piece of some work I've done during the pandemic time. So from Dear Martin, the follow-up to that, which is Dear Justice. Also, I'm thrilled that I got to narrate Angie Thomas's Concrete Rose, which was a sort of prequel to The Hate You Give following the dad there. And then, of course, Lisa Klein Ransom's work. There are a few different books, Finding Langston, Looking for Lyman, and Being Clem, which are all, those books are all related to each other. It's great. It's really great. Sometimes it's really appropriate to have the perspective of the main character be represented or, or reflected in the narrator. But other times, though, we can certainly let our imagination roam a little farther than that in terms of representation, but with the, the idea of really representing the ideas and the story and the people very well who are, who are in, in those books. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Do you do any special preparation for audiobook roles? Like I assume you read the book, um, but are you taking notes as you're reading the book? Do you read it multiple times? 
those are really great questions. And people do different things. For me, yes, for sure, I read the book. <laughs> That's really important. And it's also delicious to me to do that anyway. But yeah, I read the book. And when I read it, I usually read it, well, I almost know. In fact, I can't think of another time when I've read it in preparation more than once. And as I'm reading it, I'm reading it like a reader, like a consumer of the story, just taking it in. But also, I try to be just aware of what I'm hearing. Like sometimes a character will step forward in my imagination and they'll be really clear. If I have questions, I definitely will jot that down. Questions are either about meaning or words or something going on. I'm not someone who keeps copious notes. I will have notes sometime. For instance, I'm thinking about Black Leopard, Red Wolf. It's a book of Marlon James's. I did its great first book in this Africa-inspired fantasy trilogy. And that book had so many curly cues. I wrote the questions down and we got to talk about them later. But that's really important. So that's what I kind of do in terms of preparation. Otherwise, I just want to put myself into the place that just as I'm beginning to narrate the book, I know everything I need to know and nothing else so that I can run and leap off the cliff in terms of telling the story <laughs> and see how it develops. I guess how you approach a character might change, obviously, as you read the book and you go, oh, he's the bad guy, so it can change. Yeah, it's why I think it's really important to have read the book so that you have the total scope. And also, I think one thing that's really important is to be open to discovery so that we can discover the book through the narration so that I can discover the book as I'm telling the story um, too. And it's interesting because the books are different and styles of book are different as well. Sometimes from what I just described to you in terms of discovery, but there are other times when we have an omniscient narrator who is coming from a point of view and that definitely is coloring how the story is being told. Sometimes I've been in stories where it's like, huh, uh-oh, uh-oh. But we don't know what the uh-oh is all about until we get deep into the story. <laughs> so. Do you get notes along with it? Like, does the author say, well, make sure you do this, or, or phonetic pronunciations of names if there's a name that you can't quite figure out? Definitely. It's always important to me, if I can, to have a conversation with the author before we begin. I just find that inevitably... I always find out something that I would not have known that enhances the storytelling by having the opportunity to have a chat like that. And it's just really important. And I think all of the authors that I've worked with, nobody has been really prescriptive about how it has to happen. But I do have my questions for them. And we find out about what the author would like for people to take from it. And that's just totally informing uh, the story. I'm laughing because I'm thinking about <clears throat> there is a book by Matt de la Pena, and it's called Ball Don't Lie. I think it might have been his first book. I'm not sure. But anyway, we've, I've narrated a handful of titles of his, and he's really great. I love him. He's a YA um, author. But in this book, this book follows the main character of a young white boy in L.A. He's got some social anxiety, and he's had some psychological damage 
from things in his life. His mom committed suicide, for instance. But the place where he feels most at home is on the basketball court, and he's extremely talented. And specifically, he's most at home on street ball courts with black and brown men in L.A. So every now and then, the seemingly detached, omniscient third-person narrator, there were a couple times where there was a personalization. Like I remember one time in the book where it says, well, I forgot to tell you about Sticky. And I asked Matt, I said, so who is the narrator? Is it his friend we meet at the end of the book? And Matt said, oh, no, it's the game. And I was like, what? The game of basketball? He's like, yeah, street ball, actually. And I, I <laughs> never would have known that had I not asked him. And yeah. that completely, um, subtly, but completely changed the narration to the way it spooled out and the perspective of it. It was a mind blow as far as I didn't think about like the game of basketball, which is that knowledgeable about so many things and knowledgeable about all of the, the players on these street courts and their life experiences and what they're struggling with and what they've overcome or what they are grappling with and what they're trying to get through and how that uh, informs where this character of the narrator is coming from. It was really brilliant. I felt really glad that we had had that <laughs> conversation. But I think that's an example of why I always feel like, for me anyway, it's worthwhile. It's, it's, I always find it useful. And you mentioned earlier that somebody had asked for you. Do you get authors asking you to do their work often? I do. <laughs> I do. <laughs> I do. I think lots of people are aware of my work in this realm, but also in the other realms of what I do. But certainly I get lots of requests, lots of authors who would like for me to be their avatar. <laughs> Dave Eggers is funny. Dave jokingly and, uh, refers to me sometimes. Uh, I love that you're my megaphone. <laughs> it's great. I, I do most of my Dave Eggers, uh, works as well. I haven't done all of them for uh, various reasons. Usually it's a one-off. He's giving another friend of his a chance uh, to do it, but most of the work of his, we've been collaborating for a long time. The first book of his I did was What is the What, which is written in collaboration with and about one of the lost boys of Sudan. It's a really beautiful book. And in doing that, Dave and I were at a talk out in California one time about that book. And we're in the car getting there and Dave says, so I've heard that most people are coming to the book through this, this audio book that you made. It's like, that's fantastic. I was like, oh, that's, that's really cool. And he's like, yeah. And they're, they're really loving it. So would you do the rest of them? <laughs> sure, man. Sure. <laughs> so I feel really fortunate that that's the case. And speaking of him, you did his most recent book, The Every. That's the sequel to The Circle. What was the experience like recording that one? Both of those you did the narration for. How did those books make you feel and how did you feel kind of connecting with them? That's a great question, Steve. Well, all I can say is they are, I don't want to say that they're just tech phobic. What they are is he began The Circle talking about the idea of what if these mega social media corporations and other big companies like Google and Facebook and what else could I pick? Apple. What if they all came together to form a big company that would be called The Circle? And 
But even though it's hilarious, we're like, ha ha ha, oh gosh, that's funny. Oh, look, look at these people and what they're doing and they're very funny. But then also you can think like, oh, hey, wait a minute. That's really close to how we actually live. That's true. When I'm in the hotel and I sign into the internet, I don't even read the the whole verbiage that I have to click on, I accept. I just do it automatically. And he's looking at like how, what is the impact on our society? Look at the big hacks that we've had that have compromised our, the privacy of our emails, for instance. And so, so he's looking at all that. And then of course, he said we had to say in the circle and the fact that when the every came out, the every imagined, what if that huge conglomeration of all those companies which came into a big com- company what then if they merged with like the big retailer now like amazon would that be good for our society or would that be problematic for society in terms of like how we were being led and what the what the impact would be so i'll tell you that narrating that was uh riot it was great it's it's hilarious but it is also deeply um deeply harrowing uh just as as soon as you think like oh my goodness that's great oh that's not too far but how we actually live right now so yeah it was great it was great i really really feel really great to uh have been able to bring that to life too yeah as they say it's funny because it's true (laughs) yeah exactly exactly it's funny because it's true (laughs) and we don't want it to be true necessarily but hello yeah well like that's some dark humor, but it's humor and you've done serious things. You've done nonfiction and fiction. How do you approach the material? Do you have any specific way you kind of get into a mindset or is it always just you approach each book individually? I, I do. You, you just said it. I, I really just approach each book individually in terms of what how I feel the book is talking to me and talking to us as readers, listeners. And it's interesting because sometimes I think a book might, I will have read it and I'm, have had an experience it's great and i think that it's gonna unspool one way but when i start narrating it and things come forward that are in the book i realize that the story it gets told in a different way and sometimes you think wow i didn't imagine it would play out like that but in fact this is in the book because sometimes when we're reading a book we sometimes can read fast we go fast over some things that i think when you listen to it there's no opportunity to do that like you don't skip by the bloody part, whether that's metaphorically bloody or it's literally bloody. You right. don't skip by it because you can't speed up in your mind about it. Well, when you're approaching nonfiction work, like you have the 90s by Chuck Klosterman, do you read that in your own voice? Or how do you think of that when it's like not a character in particular that's telling a story? That's a really good question. Well, first thing I would say is, you know, everything is coming through me, through my understanding of of the book and through my physical being. But I would say my thing, I guess, is I'm really always trying to be in response to actually the book, to what the author is saying in the book. With that book, if I remember correctly, I haven't listened to it yet, but he is narrating a lot of it himself. And I was doing some setup pieces for him or some pieces that are in conversation with his narration or bracketing his narration to, to set them up. So that's one type of role that I've played in that kind of book. But there's other kinds of nonfiction. Like I'm, this one popped up in my head. I narrated Matt Desmond's Evicted 
few years ago, Pulitzer Prize winner and yeah. various other awards. And that book is a really important piece of work looking at the role that eviction plays in our society and also not just as a manifestation of poverty, but as something that creates poverty sometimes um, or en enhances that situation. Yeah. And his writing is so powerful. It's, it's a book that after he had embedded himself for a couple of years in some very challenged communities in Milwaukee, different parts of the town, actually, in different backgrounds of people in the town. So to look deeply at those people's lives and eviction and the role that it was playing in their lives. And I just felt that what I tried to do was take a very simple approach to it so that I could be surely out of the way of murking anything up. And I also yeah. tried to, when I was reflecting the characters in that, I also just tried to be an open channel and just subtly allow what was going on with them to be brought to life because it felt like the right approach. And I feel good about how that played itself out because it's an important book. Right. So all that to say, Steve, that like depends on the book, <laughs> but I don't have any um, formulas that I try to adhere to. There's a book that I narrated some years ago called, oh, what's it called? It's, I think it's, they called themselves the KKK or something like that. And the way that book, which is targeted towards young people, spooled itself out. It had characters. And the way this book was written, I just really fully embodied the characters because that's what made sense. That's how the book spoke to me. And I'm thinking this is a different bookend to this, but I just recently narrated it's going to come out in a short while, I think, called Freedom. It's again targeted to young folks, but of course it's for everybody. But it's about the Black Panthers. And this book, I find it very positive, but also very fervent. And I allowed the narration to come from that place. So as opposed to doing it from thinking about, oh, I'm doing it for myself or not for myself. No, I just really more thinking about the message of the book and what the book was saying. Yeah. If that makes any sense. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. You did mention that some authors do request you, but how do you go about choosing what you say yes to, whether it's the author coming to you or the publisher or whoever? Oh, that's a really great question. First of all, let me just say I get offered a lot of great material. I'm really fortunate that that's the case for me. I get offered a, a lot of great material. I mean, I've, it's, it's regressed a long way from the first book I did, and no disrespect to that book. I, I get offered a lot of great material from the different realms of literature, and that's great. It's a long way from recording James Joyce into a cassette. <laughs> Yes, although that was incredible material. And I'd love to record that again professionally, but actually, yeah, you're right, it is. <laughs> but what I was going to say is, as long as it's a good story and if the writing is great, that's easy for me. Sometimes if the writing might be more complicated or uh, problematic or, or tougher not to crack, I definitely won't turn that down. I just try to find out how to reveal the story. But I feel fortunate that I get off. I get offered a lot of great stuff, Steve. So if I'm available and if I can make room for it, I'm down for the journey. How much time would you say it takes for you to record the audiobook once you're kind of all set up, ready to go? Like if it's 20 hours long, does it take you 30 hours? You know, something like that. If it's 20 hours long, I'm usually two to one. That is usually for one hour of recorded material. It usually takes me two hours. It can be faster sometimes. Sometimes it might be a little slower. It depends on 
how the book is written. Some books are denser than others, but usually it's two to one for me. So like a 20 hour book would take me 40 hours generally on an average to do. Yeah. And during the pandemic, do you record at home? I do not record at home. Mad respect to all the people that I, I know or anybody who does record at home and who enjoys that. I myself prefer it to record in a studio where other um, brilliant people who know what they're doing in engineering and all that can do that. And I'm utterly free to be a wizard in the laboratory, if you will, <laughs> doing the other side. I feel really fortunate that that's the case, but that's that's what I do. During the early day of the pandemics, early days of the pandemic, that's what I mean, not of the pandemics. Let's have no more, please. But in the early days of the pandemic, uh, when things were a little bit shut down, I had a uh, friend who is a studio um, that's not far away from me in uh, the house, and he's excellent. And so I was able to keep going. We didn't have to pause, and there were a lot of things coming down the pipe, so... For a short period of time, we did a, a number of things there, and that was great. But I'm really glad to be back in the studios that I, I work in regularly again. It's really great. It makes it kind of a team effort, yeah. less so than a TV show or a movie where you have dozens or hundreds of people around, but yeah. um, a, a small group of people, you and the engineer and a few other people. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes it's me and an engineer, and sometimes there's a director, not all the time, and sometimes there's, there's not, which is great. So I feel really blessed that uh, usually there's a lot of trust from my directors, from the authors about me bringing it to life. And that's really great. Well, before we wrapped up, I wanted to ask also about another current new release that you have, the sure. Dirty Bird Blues by Clarence uh, Major. I just finished recording it two days ago. So that is a, a Penguin Random House book. And also, by the way, shout out to Penguin Random House who have connected us today, Steve. They're some yes, of my favorite collaborators. Yeah, no, definitely. And we've had some really great collaborations. Producer that I had worked with a couple of times before brought this to me. And wow, what a book it is. It's very blues inflected. And it's coming out of uh, a man who's a blues musician who has come up from the South to try to do his thing and his family's come up from there. But it's funny when I did get a chance to talk to the author and I asked him what he wanted listeners to take from this. And so he said, well, you mean what the book is about? It's a love story. He loves his wife. He loves his music too. And there's a lot of conflict and friction in between <laughs> trying to really serve both of those. And that's all throughout the book. It's great because there's blues music that the author wrote, when I say this music, there, there are songs, there's no music oh. to them, but there are songs that he wrote that I, I did bring to life in cool. there, if I give it original interpretations, and it's taking place, you know, around 1949, so it's really specific, but it's quite a piece, and it's really kind of in a blues idiom a lot, too, from that period of time. Well, you started with a book where you were rapping and now you're doing the blues. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. And also, just so you know, in Black Leopard, Red Wolf, I also was a griot. There were two parts that were griots basically singing the experience and song of, or I don't even know what would call it singing, but they were definitely bringing musically to life different characters' experiences in there. Yes, yeah, so there you go. You're right. Music is sometimes entwined. 
Uh, we talked about libraries at the beginning, your good memories there. How does it feel now that your work is there on libraries inspiring people today? Oh, my goodness. My goodness. I feel so honored, Steve. I feel really just hum- humbly honored that that is, that's really true. And I feel really blessed. Overwhelmingly, people seem to be responding so positively and so involvedly and committedly to the audiobooks that I've had a hand in bringing to life. And it's just a real blessing. And libraries in general, they just remain a big, revered institution to me. I certainly spent a lot of time with my kids in libraries for the same inspirations (laughs) that I had as a young child. And I just think they're just really important. And we always want to make sure that they stay alive and here for us to use and to immerse ourselves in and to like, just learn from and to take advantage of. So I feel really blessed by this. I I hope that your podcast also is a way of connecting um, listeners to library experiences as well. I have so much uh, respect for librarians. Uh, It's it's a life commitment to some things that I think are really, really important to young people, but then to young adults and people getting older, just all the way through um, the whole spectrum of life. It feels like a really um, important shepherding, if that makes any sense. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. Um, And thank you for coming on the show today, Dion. If people wanted to get in touch with you, is there a way they could get in touch with you to ask you questions? They can always ask you, Steve. If anybody has a question from your audience, they can always send it to you. And know that it will get to me because you know exactly how to get in touch with me. Yes, I will pass it along. (laughs) I want to give a shout out to a work that has just come out recently, too, by the great Robin McLean. This is her debut novel, which has had massively great reviews. It's called Pity the Beast. It's a modern take on the Old West. It's also been described as an eco-feminist Western. That makes me chuckle to say that. But it's definitely a ride. But it's really worthwhile. Well, that sounds cool to me. So lots of good recommendations here for things to listen to. So get out there and get to your library and get these checked out. Yeah, definitely. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure to be with you, Steve. Thanks, Bian. You're welcome. Circulating Ideas is produced in the suburbs of Atlanta. Views expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect those of my place of work or the place of work of guests. For past interviews, visit circulatingideas.com and follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, or your podcast app of choice. And help others find the show by leaving a rating or a review. To learn more about this episode's guests, sign up for the Circulating Ideas newsletter. You can find the link in the show notes or on the site. Theme music is by Pamela Klicka, and the logo is by Shandy Fry. Thank you for listening, and keep circulating your ideas. Thank you.